either consume beer or non-alcoholic beer and you don't know which one it is and then see whether people's behavior (laughs) actually changes. That would be a, a big step up in the methodology. I love that idea. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by who is now going to host today's episodes because we have a little bit of a, a weather-related snafu. And uh, unfortunately, Jess, who was supposed to be one of our co-hosts for today, couldn't make it. And given the summer and everybody being in all kinds of different places, we figured best to move forward. So you're going to get a rarity, which is a Matt and Chris only episode, which I think is um, it's going to be interesting to see how this goes. Fortunately, we agree on absolutely everything. So there'll be no debate or dissent. I totally disagree with you on that, Chris. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Jeez. So you know what I, I find fascinating about these episodes is that you know we're we're recording this on you know distant software. I'm using this uh, program called Audacity, recommended to me by our own Nick Guler. And when I uh, when I talk, it shows me the sound waves of my voice. Mm-hmm. And when I laugh, it's metronomic. It's like you can see the spikes, and they're they're precise and repeatable. And it's so clearly you're looking at this, and you realize this is a neurologic behavior that the laugh is 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 a very very finely coordinated, uh, you know, neurophysiological response that that um, obeys a set of rules that we're unaware of. Well, there you go. There you go. Something I did not know before. So anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health here at the uh, Boston University School of Public Health. And this time I am joined only by Dr. Christopher Gill from the Global Health Department at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Chris. Yes. Hello, Matthew. And, as and happy room, 4th of July, impending. Happy pending. So by the time this airs, I guess it'll be after 4th of July, and it'll be our first 4th of July in two years, I guess, where people are allowed to go outside and enjoy. Yeah. Anyway, as a reminder, if you could go on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. You want to go over there to look at all of our uh, exciting programs and and tools that are available. And then as a reminder, if you love the show, go on your your favorite web browser or your favorite podcast app and go on over to the site and and give us a five-star rating or a zero-star rating, whatever you want to give us to let us know how you feel about the show. And uh, we very much appreciate it. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to Talk about a, a study on whether mosquitoes infected with Wolbachia bacteria can reduce the risk of dengue fever. Now, I, I found this to be a, a particularly fascinating study we'll get into, but it's particularly relevant given that a, a couple of episodes back, I had a what Don would call the wild and wacky, but is the amazing and amusing, where I talked about the release of genetically engineered mosquitoes for you know reduction of, of mosquitoes. And I was super skeptical. Yeah, but now here's one that's not genetically modified, but it's a uh, infected with a particular bacteria. So it's going to be interesting to see how this goes. Then in our, our second part of the podcast, which is our, our deep dive, we'll talk about the legal epidemiology of pandemic control or legal epidemiology in general and what that is and, and whether or not we should be doing more or less of it. And then finally, we'll get into our amazing and amusing where Chris will will talk to us about watermelons, I think, or something watermelon related. <laughs> yes, I, I think I should talk about the, the neurophysiology of laughter. 
Oh, there we go. There we go. You can that would that. be a good one. I'll think about that next time, though. All right. So let's get into to segment one, which is our, our Journal Club segment. We're going to look at a study, as I said, that looked at the effectiveness of using mosquitoes infected with a particular bacteria to reduce the risk of, of acquiring dengue fever. Now, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was entitled The Efficacy of Wolbachia-Infected Mosquito Deployments for the Control of Dengue by first author Adi Uterani of the World Mosquito Program in the Center for Tropical Medicine at Yogyakarta, Indonesia. Uh, a few headlines on this one. So science and AAS says mosquitoes armed with virus-fighting bacteria sharply curb dengue infections and hospitalizations. The Atlantic wrote a piece on this that said a pivotal mosquito experiment could not have gone better. So there you go. You get a you get a, a, a result in the headline. CNN News says modified mosquitoes reduced dengue cases by 77% in Indonesia experiment, which I thought, you know, they are modified, but it, it is worth noting they were not genetically modified like in the, the example that I gave previously. And then MSN says groundbreaking trial sees dengue fever cases fall by 77% in Indonesia. So, Chris, can you, um, can you give us the, the rundown on this study? Yeah. So I think to make sense of this project, We've to get, we're going to start by talking a little bit about this bacterium called Wolbachia, and I will say that this is a this is a a topic that has popped up from time to time in my infectious disease career. My exposure to this this uh, pathogen is in the context of this disease called onchocerciasis, otherwise known as river blindness, which is a filarial roundworm that lives in lymph nodes and can cause swelling and other different uh, symptoms in individuals. And the interesting thing about this uh, bacteria is that it lives inside the, the the roundworms. It is a it is a Generally considered to be an endosymbiont, meaning that it's a it's a bacteria that lives inside all of these these roundworms and seems to contribute certain me- metabolic factors that are essential to the reproduction of the worm. So that if you give tetracycline, which is a common antibiotic that kills the Wolbachia, it it renders the the, the roundworms sterile, and so that they they can no longer transmit their infection and eventually die. And this is sort of like a really fascinating thought that that you know we're trying to come up with drugs that would kill the roundworm but in fact if we if we use common antibiotics that kill this essential commensal organism that lives in the roundworms that is an indirect way of interfering with the reproductive success of the roundworm itself it's really hmm. an interesting thought so you know that that's what i knew about wolbachia coming into this it's named after a, a microbiologist called Simeon Burt Wolbach and it was discovered in 1924 now the thing about these this wolbachia is that they are are really ubiquitous in the insect and in vertebrates kingdoms. These bacteria are not just found in roundworms, but they're found in mosquitoes, for example. In fact, the first discovery of these was in the mosquito, the common household mosquito that we found here in New England called Culex pipiens. And so the, the name of the bacteria then became Wolbachia pipientis because it was found in Culex pipiens. Now, when these, these, these bacteria invade different species of insects or roundworms, but here we're, we're talking about mosquitoes, they can have totally different effects. And there are four different ways that the, the Wolbachia can affect the host. The first is that if, if they infect certain male species of, of insects during their larval development, it can actually kill them. And so that will then increase the rate of females that are born as opposed to males. And so it can really distort the, the male-female balance of an insect population. A second one 
one is that the the infection in males, in, in developed males, can feminize them so that they become infertile pseudo-females. Behaviorally, hmm. they become females, but they, they're, they're infertile. And so they, they, they attempt to mate, but they cannot actually produce any eggs because they are males. And this, is, this has been seen in certain species of butterflies, for example. So it's not just mosquitoes. A third one is that it can, it can actually render female insects, certain female insects, capable of parthenogenesis, which means that they can, have, they, can, they can create fertile eggs in the absence of a male and just reproduce it by themselves. And there's a Ooh. whole series of, of parasitic wasps where the males of the species have become vanishingly rare wow. and the females just reproduce by themselves because of the Wolbachia. And if the Wolbachia are gone, they can't do it. So they're totally dependent on this, this ability to sort of change their, their endocrine function and turn them into sort of self-reproducing females. It's okay, amazing. I, I got to stop you there and just say that is so cool. It is so cool. And, and the fact that it behaves in so many different ways is, is kind of mind-bending when you yeah. think about it. And, and the last one, which is the one that is relevant to today's discussion, is something called cytoplasmic incompatibility, where it, it, it renders the Wolbachia-infected males able to successfully reproduce with uninfected females or females that are infected with another Wolbachia strain. And the result of that is it changes the reproductive success of those uninfected females. Now, in this case, the Wolbachia that are are, are that have been bred into these Aedes aegypti mosquitoes, which are not normally hosts for Wolbachia. So this is an exception that the Aedes aegypti don't naturally have Wolbachia. So the bacteria has been introduced into them. What it does is, is it creates a survival advantage so that when the female progeny of these males, who in the process of mating with a female, will transfer the Wolbachia into the female, that it renders the females unpatent, that is to say resistant, to being infected with certain viruses. Now, this is a funny thought because we think about dengue fever, for example, as being a, a virus that only affects humans. Mm -hmm. But actually, when the mosquito slurps up a mouthful of dengue virus and the dengue virus starts to replicate in the, in the mosquito, it actually makes the mosquitoes quite ill as well. Mm. So you can feel somewhat, you know, you know, good about the fact that the mosquito is also <laughs> suffering from this. But, okay. but here what we have is that the Wolbachia is render the mosquito, the female mosquitoes resistant to being infected by dengue virus. It's fascinating. It's totally and, and, fascinating. Uh, totally fascinating. And so here we have, you know, what, earlier when we were talking about this genetically modified mosquitoes, I was, I was talking about how, how skeptical I was that mm -hmm. like, how would this work with natural evolution favoring, you know, the, the emergence of, of, of mosquitoes that can get around whatever genetic, you know, trick that you have thrown at them. But here you're actually, you're introducing an organism that enhances the survival of dengue resistant mosquitoes. There's no advantage to mosquito to have dengue virus, right? Mm -hmm. So here we've created a genetic benefit to, to the per persistence of this and dissemination of this strain. So to me, this seems like a, a strategy that suddenly has some real potential to it because now this is something that could easily spread through the population of mosquitoes and perpetuate itself. And the last sort of fascinating thing I'll, I'll mention about that is that even though the this is a you know essentially an STD of insects, that is to say the males infected with Wolbachia their sperm will carry the Wolbachia into the female and infect the female. The female eggs, when they 
are infected with with Wolbachia transmit vertically, which means that all of the the, the eggs that she lays are going to have Wolbachia in them. So across generations, it's the female mosquitoes that are transferring Wolbachia generation to generation to generation through these eggs, not the males. The males do it horizontally when they mate with the females, but the females do it vertically across generations, and that allows this this sort of endosymbiosis between the bacteria and the mosquito to perpetuate. And as we've seen, essentially uh, indefinitely in certain species and also roundworms. So with that all said, mm-hmm. uh, we'll turn to the, the current paper, which is this really interesting paper in the New England Journal of Medicine just published last month, talking about, and the, the title is called Efficacy of Wolbachia Infected Mosquito Deployments for the Control of Dengue. This was a, a, a quasi-random study done in a part of Indonesia called Yogyakarta, which I had to look up, but it's on the southern coast of Java, which is the long skinny islands facing down towards the coral seas. And what they did is they they created this breed of 80s Egypti mosquitoes, basically in, in aviaries, mosquito aviaries. They introduced the Wolbachias into them. They infected the females with Wolbachia. They then harvested the eggs of those Wolbachia-infected females, which now also contain the Wolbachia in the eggs. They gathered those up, and then they essentially distributed these in a, in a quasi-random way across uh, a dozen or so districts in this, you know, this metropolitan uh, region in, 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 in Jakarta, which was endemic for, for dengue fever. So you have sort of like basically a cluster randomized design. It's very mm-hmm. similar to that, where you have some districts which, which got these distribution of eggs and the others which did not. And then they basically wanted to see over the, the coming several years, what impact did that have on pcr confirmed confirmed febrile illness due to dengue fever and other viruses that are in the uh, in the same family such as chikungunya and zika virus but their main focus was on dengue and so basically the way this, this study was done is that they, you know, created these, these uh, genetically modified mosquito eggs carrying the Wolbachia mel strain. And then they enrolled a whole series of subjects who were going to be the, the, the cases for detecting dengue. They introduced the, the eggs uh, into, what was the total number of districts here? 12 geographic clusters that got the eggs. And this was done repeatedly over a period of months starting in 2017. So it wasn't just that they, you know, distributed the eggs once, but they did it repeatedly over time. And then they had 12 districts that that, that, that did not get the uh, distributed eggs. Now, this was not done as a, a ran, as a blinded study that everybody knew which districts they lived in, and therefore there's some risk of ascertainment bias, I would, I would suppose. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, it, it was a relatively clean design. And what they found was that there was a substantial reduction, higher than a 70% reduction in febrile dengue-confirmed infections across all four serotypes of, de- of dengue virus in the in the in the control areas, and they they back up this observation with some sort of interesting entomological data, where they they look at you know the proportion of mosquito captures over the you know following the introduction the start of the introduction of these Wolbachia infected mosquito eggs to sort of determine what proportion of these sample of the mosquitoes that they caught subsequently, you know which are due to the progeny these you know the eggs growing up and turning into males and females and mating and further 
further disseminating the Wolbachia into the population, what proportion of mosquitoes that they capture thereafter carry the Wolbachia bacteria? And, and they found within about four or five months that close to 100% of them did. The, the part about this that I found really interesting is that they also looked at the, the Wolbachia dissemination within the controls because of, you know, one of the, the cardinal features of mosquitoes is, the, is that they fly about, right? And so they're not going to yep. stay in their damn districts. They're going to go elsewhere. And so you would predict that over time, the, the, the effect comparing the control and the intervention is, is it kind of going to blur away because the mosquitoes are spreading across the entire district. And that is exactly what they found is that the, the, the Wolbachia, you know, by the end of, of, the, of the project, some 50 to 90 percent of the control districts also had Wolbachia infected Aedes aegypti mosquitoes, which really attests to the, I think, the sort of feasibility of this approach because it shows that these things are persisting, not just persisting, but outcompeting the uh, Wolbachia negative AD, native Aedes aegypti mosquitoes and now taking over the entire population. So it's really sort of, I think, a fascinating bit of epidemiology. I had a couple, you know, concerns, uh, you know, mainly around the, the blinding, which I think just could be a risk of, of ascertainment bias. But, you know, that I think that was a relatively uh, subtle effect. I think it's likely to be a relatively subtle effect. And overall, I, I came away from this paper really kind of like to totally impressed with the novelty of this idea and, and uh, you know, thinking that, you know, this actually could be feasible. Yeah. What, what did you think, Matt? So I loved this study. This is this is uh, up there. You know, it wasn't that long ago we had another study that we we really loved. But this is definitely one of my my favorites that I've read in a while. Which isn't Me to say too. that I don't have some some critiques, but I just thought it was such a a clever design, and I think it illustrates some really interesting things that I think we we could talk about. So first of all. So I was I was actually aware of the Wolbachia issue, the, the idea that Wolbachia was a potential preventive measure against dengue fever, and the reason that I knew this was because it's a it's an example that is used when you're trying to teach interaction to students. So when you when you think about the concept of interaction, and I'm not going to get into the sort of detailed specifics about the different kinds of, of interaction, but let's just talk about biologic or, or, or physical interaction, the idea that two different exposures come together to change the effect of a, you know of one of the exposures. So they come together to produce more or fewer cases of, of a particular outcome than you would expect based on their individual effects alone. And when you teach that concept, people often can can grasp the idea that that two things come together. You know, the, the sort of this puzzle piece idea that you need A and B to produce a case of of disease. But and so and so that's the way we typically teach it. You need A and B, or maybe it's that you know if you have A, you get some cases of disease. You have B, you get some cases of disease. But if you have A and B, it's really bad. So think of like smoking. And lung cancer and then asbestos and lung cancer, those are both going to produce cases of lung cancer. But if you have a smoker and uh, exposed to asbestos, it's going to be it's going to be really bad. Right. Or, and, or like also working at a coal mine. Yeah. And smoking. Yeah. Yeah. So so people can really wrap their their heads around this idea that that these two you know exposures might be more than just additive. But. Interaction can be much more complicated than that. It can be. It can work in in negative directions, and that's where I think people often have a really difficult time wrapping their heads around it. The idea that, you know, if I have A, I get 
some cases of disease. If I have B, I get some cases of disease. But if I have A and B, I don't really get many cases of disease. And this is a really good example of that. So if you have a mosquito that is infected with dengue, then there is a a risk of, of dengue fever. If you have a mosquito that is infected with Bulbachia but no dengue, then there's no risk of, of dengue. If you've got a mosquito that is infected with dengue and Wolbachia, you've got almost no risk of dengue, right? So these two things are interacting in a way that one is blocking the other. The Wolbachia infection in the mosquito is blocking the effect of the dengue infection in the mosquito to be able to have that infection take hold and multiply and therefore be able to transmit. And so it's, a, it's just this fascinating example of a case where the interaction is, is in a negative way. You know, having, having just the, the dengue in the mosquito puts you at, at high risk for transmission, but having the dengue plus the Wolbachia blocks the infection. And I just think that's, that's a really cool example of this, this negative interaction. Yeah, I would agree. And, and, and another thing I would add to that that's been particularly fascinating is that this is an interaction that plays across not just three different species, but three different kingdoms of organisms. Yeah. We've got uh, viruses, we've got bacteria, we've got mosquitoes, four, in fact, and humans, if you yeah. add the humans into that. So it's like, you know, this sort of cross phylogenetic, you know, meta interaction is going on here. Just such a, a, a peculiar, peculiar, odd, bizarre, sort of mind-bendingly weird example of the, the beauty of nature yeah. <laughs> to create these sort of quirky, un, totally unanticipated. It's like science fiction where you say, you really, you couldn't make this stuff up. This is just too weird to be true. And yet it seems to be true. Totally agree. Totally agree. So I mean, there's cool. so many times when I think the world is a, a horrible place. And then, you know, you come across things like this where the world is beautiful and, and you know, these things are just really fascinating and, and inspiring and exciting to see. And then, the, of course, then then the way that, that, you know, these people then were able to take advantage of it and use it in a way to actually benefit humanity is, is like, it's all inspiring. It's, it's really, really cool. Yeah, I agree. I agree. This was a great paper. I loved reading it. I was I learned a lot from it. I, I found my, my curiosity meter going up and up and up up the more I read it uh, read it and I just wanted to know more about these Wolbachias, which just sound like the the most the most bizarre bacteria I've ever I've ever heard of. Actually. They are they are wacky. They are wacky. So the so the second thing, the other thing that I found really fascinating about this is their use of a test negative design. So as you pointed out, Chris, this is a a cluster randomized trial, but the way that they actually went about evaluating the effectiveness of the intervention is not the way that we typically think about going about evaluating a a, a randomized trial, which is that you you enroll a bunch of, of people, you follow them, and then you see whether or not there are differences in the rates of, of dengue fever in these different populations, because here you you don't have individuals directly exposed to an intervention, right? You don't know who's actually going to be bit by a, a mosquito or not, and who's going to go on and get sick. So you could, in theory, try to enroll every single person in, in a cluster, but that's going to be really hard to do. And so what they did instead was they used this, this test negative design, which is an approach that I, I don't, I don't know for sure that it was pioneered for 
influenza, but it's it's certainly been used a lot for influenza. And the idea is that rather than enrolling a bunch of people and following them over time, what you do is essentially you wait for people to show up at a at a clinic with with you know signs of infection. And then you you sort of do almost like a, a case control design where you find the people who have who show up with you know febrile illness and you test them to find out who's got dengue or not. Typically, when you do the, the case control approach, you'd say, okay, now we have a bunch of people who have dengue fever. Now we want to compare them to a uh, a sample of people who represent the distribution of the exposure in the base. In this case, the exposure being, did you live in a cluster where we released these Wolbachia-infected mosquitoes? But now you've got to, you, you know, you sort of get problems in those kind of approaches in that because you waited for people to come to the clinic you have the potential for differences in the way that health-seeking behavior works for different conditions. And so a representative sample of the population as your, as your base might end up giving you a, 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 a skewed distribution. You, you would introduce selection bias. So what you do instead is you take the people who showed up at the clinic for a febrile illness that could have been dengue fever but tested negative, and you use that as your control population because right. the hope is that if people are showing up for at a clinic for febrile illness, the health-seeking behaviors are the same. And now you've got a population that you know didn't have dengue fever but have the same health-seeking behavior, and you use those as your control population. Then you look, see how many of the people with dengue fever came from uh, intervention versus control clusters, and then how many people in the comparison population that had a febrile illness that was not dengue also came from, you know, what's the distribution in terms of coming from the intervention and, and control sites. And so you get this really, really nice, clean design. It's not perfect because it is still a, a case control type design. So you can you can get some selection bias, but it's just a really nice way and a very efficient way of, of monitoring this population. I was going to say it, it. It takes the onus off of following all those individuals in these clusters to try to, you know, prospectively identify dengue. Basically, you 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 don't follow them at all. You just wait for them to show up in the clinic, saying, "I feel crummy. I've got a fever and a headache, and I feel awful." And then you do a blood test and 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 you know, ask them. By the way, where do you live? Where have you lived for the last ten days? I think the way they defined the cluster was where they had resided in the, in the preceding ten days leading up to the onset of the febrile illness. Yep. So it also allowed the, the participants to to go anywhere they wanted. They weren't fixed to a you know a, a zone. Their zone varied based on where they had been most recently. And I thought that it was that was also extremely clever and a, and potentially a very efficient way of running a you know a big sort of ecologically focused field study like this. Yep. I mean I think I I do think you can you can run into some challenges with a design like this in that, you know, it sort of depends on where the health facilities are clustered, you know, how exactly you would expect people to to show up in one of those clinics based on whether or not they're from an intervention or control. But they, it looked to me, you know, they show you a map of these clusters and where the health facilities were. And it did seem like there was a, a certainly a, a reasonable chance that a person you know the the clusters were defined such that the clinics were were clearly going to be taking in people from both intervention and control sites, and therefore I think they 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 reasonably overcame that problem. In fact, sometimes the clinics were right on the border. Right, right. I, I, as a as a small critique, even though I, I found their their data quite persuasive, I, I wish that they had 
they had used a control 80s Egypti introduction, introgression as they call it, that they, you know, in the control districts, rather than not distributing any 80s Egypti eggs that at all, they that they had used a Wolbachian negative strain of 80s Egypti. I think that would have made their their conclusions even more persuasive that this wasn't just some like some you know unanticipated shift in the 80s Egypti population because of the introduction and whether it was Wolbachia or not, you know, one doesn't know. I, I I think that's very unlikely that that was the case. I think the biology is 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 very supportive of their of their theory, but it, it would have made it that much stronger if they had done that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The second thing that I, I really wish that they had done, and this is not a methodological issue, but I wish that they had shown a a, a time varying effect size because of this issue of the eventual sort of blending of these districts as the Wolbachias distribute across all districts and all zones and sort of take over the entire uh, Yogyakarta region, right? I, I what what you would expect is if you know once the the you know, the Wolbachia are everywhere, the Wolbachia infected mosquitoes are everywhere, that the effect size will, 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 you know, revert to, to zero, right? Because everybody is getting, there's no difference between intervention and control because the mos- those mosquitoes are now everywhere. I think that that would also be very interesting to overlay against the, the entomological data showing the distribution over time of the, of the Wolbachia infected mosquitoes. So, so this gets to the other thing that I thought was fascinating about this particular study just from a a methodologic standpoint, which is, it it seems to me, and I I could be wrong about this, and maybe it's just, you know, the way I'm thinking about it, but this seems to me a case where the, if you had actually followed, you know, you'd followed this up for a longer time period, the effect of the intervention may in fact get larger over time as the mosquitoes start to spread. And the the mosquitoes with Wolbachia infections start to take over, the size of the benefit may actually increase over time. However, your ability to measure that benefit would actually go in the opposite direction. You would probably observe reduced benefit over time because those mosquitoes are now taking over, but they're also moving into the the control clusters. Exactly. And so it would appear that things are, that the benefits are going down over time, when in fact, they're probably going up. That's right. It's just that everybody has now become the intervention area. And exactly. So that's where you'd, you'd actually like to see what are the dengue rates over time? Do they Does the total force of infection of dengue virus go down, 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 down? Yeah. Not just as sort of a, like as a, you know, comparison of intervention versus control, but is the total burden of, of, of uh, dengue decreasing as a consequence of this intervention? Yeah. That would also be very uh, helpful to have seen. I hope that they, we, they will provide that in some follow-up analyses. Seems like it's a very doable, you know, analysis to do. We should, we'd, we'd love to see those results. I, yep, I agree. So I, I, I mean, I love this study, but I do think there were a few things that you could critique about it. I mean, I do think that the, the design doesn't leave its lead, it lead itself to the potential for some selection bias, like we talked about. As you pointed out, there's sort of this issue of of no placebo. I, I mean, they say no, there was no placebo in control clusters, and I'm not sure that really matters. But as you say, I mean, it would make for a, a tighter design if there had been some kind of a, a placebo release. You know, so a few things like that. But overall, I just I I, I really really like this study. It, it 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 it's a long a long long way from this uh, story that was re, re, uh, relayed in Andy Spielsman's mm-hmm. 
book from the 1991. It's called the, the Malaria Capers, I think. And it, yeah. it describes one of the first uh, experiments where they introduced genetically modified mosquitoes. But they, they did it in a very poor way where they, they created the – I don't even remember what the modification was. It really doesn't matter. Let's say it was sterile males, but it doesn't matter. point was that they, they came into this Indian village where there's a lot of malaria and also a lot of snake bites. And you know this truck rolls up, which has got the WHO logo on it, which is, yeah. as you know, has got this pole with a couple snakes wrapped around it. So the, the villagers logo. are looking at this with tremendous suspicion. They open up the doors and then release several million mosquitoes into the village and drive away with no explanation. <laughs> they then came back a couple of weeks later and did it again. And the third time they did it, the, the villagers basically stoned the van and turned it over and set it on fire. Because <laughs> they were never... They, they never thought to sort of, you know, try to, to get any uh, community engagement on this. <laughs> For all, As far as they could tell, the snake men were back releasing mosquitoes into their village as a curse. <laughs> so. and, and in fact, it is actually worth noting. It's one of the things that I wrote down about this study was they actually got community approval for these uh, releases from leaders of the, the 37 villages where they released them, which I think, you know, is obviously – and and they had mass uh, communication campaigns, which I think is, you know, is really critical, particularly something like this, which is, you know, something that when you start messing with the, the ecology, things can go wrong. And so you want to make sure that people know what's going on and that they're on board with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, super cool. Super cool. All so right. shall we move on to segment two? Let's do it. Let's move on to segment two. Now, so in segment two, we're going to talk about the, the legal epidemiology of the, of the pandemic. And I'm not going to go into a huge introduction for this one, other than to say that this came out of a, a New England Journal of Medicine commentary piece by Scott Burris. And, and I didn't write down whether it was Scott Burris and colleagues or just Scott Burris, but it was entitled the legal, the legal Epidemiology of Pandemic Control making the point that there have been in the in there was in the first half of, of 2020 more than a thousand laws and orders issued by federal state and local authorities in the United States in an effort to reduce COVID transmission. And of course, you know, using the the law or the instruments of government to try and institute pandemic control is is a very heavy heavy-handed approach. I don't mean have it handed to imply that we shouldn't be doing it. I just mean it's a it's a very strong approach to trying to control a, a, an infectious disease. And therefore, if we're going to do things like this, it would certainly we would want to know whether or not these approaches are indeed effective, you know, because they, you know, they, they curtail people's freedom of, of movement and, and, you know, the things that people can do. And so people, I think, rightfully want to know whether these you know, legal implements are effective at, at reducing transmission. Now, you know, how effective a particular legal remedy is going to be, or legal action, I should say, legal action, legal law is going to be at controlling an infectious disease is going to depend a lot on what the infectious disease is and how it's transmitted and, you know, all the, the details of that. But, but certainly you'd want to learn the lessons from this pandemic to uh, apply to any future pandemics. And yet the authors make the argument that we don't really have a very well-organized legal epidemiology program, that we, you know, you sort of have the kind of traditional epidemiology where we think about interventions that are designed to affect individuals. So, you know, drugs and and medications and, and biologics and things like that that are designed to affect individuals or behavioral interventions that are designed to get people to change their behavior 
or you have, you know, cluster level interventions like mass marketing campaigns or like the Wolbachia example that we just used where you're trying to affect health on the community level. But then you have these policy and legal approaches to trying to affect health that are very much geared towards very large clusters of individuals. So if you're going to implement a, a legal strategy, those are often done at the level of a, of a state or, or even the federal government in the United States. So, you know, they apply to very large numbers of people, and that makes it very complicated to assess the, the cause and effect relationships. But the question is, you know, should we be doing more and we should be thinking more about legal epidemiology? Should we be teaching legal epidemiology if we want to learn the lessons and get valid estimates of the effects of these different approaches. Chris, I know that you had some some skepticism about I don't know whether it's the 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 concept itself or just whether the way that this commentary was set up, but what's your what's your reaction? Well, I think in principle I I agree with their their points that it, it would be interesting to take a more scholarly scientific approach to understanding the imp- impact of different laws or maybe even just executive orders. So we're not just talking about laws that yep. are enacted yep. by a, a, a Congress, but it could be like the governor says, "Thou shalt wear masks and there shall be no bars." Things like that. And so I I, I can't disagree with that. But I I what I felt was a, a little bit of. To me, it felt like they were setting up a bit of a straw man here, because when we talk about laws, we're not really talking about the law per se. We're talking about the policy that is implied by the law. And so so, so to say that there's no scholarly work done on the the impact of laws may be technically true, but there's tons of research done on the impact of policies. And, and, And in my view, a law is merely a mechanism by which to introduce a policy. Yep. And so to say that we don't study laws is a little bit disingenuous because of course we do. We study the effect of the policies that that result from those laws. We do that all the time in clinical epidemiology. So I, I, I thought that that was that was maybe taking their 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 argument a little bit too far and I, I didn't I didn't buy it. So you know and that's one thing. And then so the second thing is that you know, there is a law, but then there's also the implementation of the law. And we know that there are many laws that are poorly enforced, yep. right? So here in Massachusetts, you are not supposed to talk on your on your cell phone without using a hands-free device. And yet, every day, you see people doing it all the time, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And no one's getting pulled over by the states to, to take away their cell phones or give them fines. It never happens. This law is completely unenforced. So it, it just seems to me like there is an example of a law that is intended to create a policy, and yet the impact of that law is very poor because the policy is not enforced. And again, it's the policy. Does the use of hand-free cell phones devices reduce the risk of car crashes? It's a very difficult study, a, a question to ask if the the law is not enforced and the policy never really comes to fruition. So I think there, you know, that is a you know, there's a two-step process there. And unless you think about the actual coverage, if you will, of the policy and the enforcement of the policy, the, the you know, the, uh, the, the, the penetrance of the policy, th- then talking about the law that led to that policy seems rather pointless to be. So that was kind of my quibble. I had a, I had a very, very similar reaction to you, Chris. I mean, I, you know, if you want to define if you want to define epidemiology by what is taught in in programs you know, epidemiology training programs, then I would, I would, I would agree with the, the authors that we don't teach much in the way of legal epidemiology, or as you point out, policy analysis, epidemiology, or, you know, the effects of, of policies. But I mean, we have, we have 
colleagues who are in you know departments of, of health policy or you know whatever their their the, the names are often changing but the, but health services research or you know all these sort of different programs who are incredibly well versed in these methods and you know certainly th- there's no doubt that these are challenging things to study because you don't you don't randomize laws and therefore finding good comparison populations to study the effects of these things is really challenging. So there are these clever designs, some of which we've talked about on the podcast, like these regression discontinuity designs or or these other approaches, you know, that that work to try and get around some of these problems. Are they perfect? Absolutely not. But does, you know, is any observational study, you know, ever perfect? No, we know that. So to to sort of say that because we don't see this going on a lot in in epidemiology training programs, I don't think is necessarily indicative that we don't that we don't do this. Now the authors point to the fact that between 1985 and 2014, NIH funded just 510 grants on the health effects of laws or enforcement practices, less than 0.25% of all funded grants. Now I don't know what would happen if you expanded that out. To rather than just say you know laws, but but policies as you as you point out, which policies are just you know are, are implementations of laws, or sometimes they are not you know in, you know legally enforceable, but they are policies that are put in place. You know that you might not find that number to go up a little bit, but maybe you don't find it going up dramatically. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of policy research going on that that isn't necessarily funded by the NIH. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing that that the NIH is probably not the mechanism by which you would you would seek to look at this. This is this is where you know like companies like Rand come in to yeah. study the impact of major policy shifts, including those that are result from changes in laws. You know, what is the effect, for example, of of putting a tax on sugar? Uh, in terms of of you know the incidence of diabetes in children, that is the kind of thing that that is is probably not studied by the NIH, but probably is studied by policy groups at the government level. So you know it's 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 a criticism of the funding mechanism, but I'm not sure that the NIH is really designed to study questions like that, whereas other entities really are. So it's it, it sort of again I felt like it's a straw man saying that the NIH doesn't fund it does not mean it's not happening. It just means that this is not the kind of thing that the NIH is designed to study. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I do think it's an interesting question to ask whether epidemiology training programs should be getting more into this kind of work and whether we should be really blurring the lines between epidemiology and, and uh, I don't know, policy analysis or whatever. You, I, don't, I don't know what the, the actual definition of, of where you would find a lot of those, those designs. A lot of it comes out of econometrics and, and things like that. But you know, should we be doing that? I know, I know our Department of Epidemiology is doing more of that. We teach some of these methods and we get more uh, and more students who want to do dissertation topics with the doctoral students who that involve some of these designs. And I, I'm fully supportive of that. But I, again, I don't think that means that it isn't, it isn't being done. And, you know, whether we want to, you know, blur the lines more and start, you know, getting epidemiologists to learn more of these approaches is an open question to me. But I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't take it as, as a given that we're not, we're not doing this. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. So, uh, straw men, here we are. Yeah. Now, the, the only other question it raises for me is to the extent that it is not done enough or to the extent that it's not being taught in, in programs of epidemiology, why, why do you think that is? I mean, is it, is it because, you know, these are inherently 
political interventions and, and epidemiologists are, are shy about getting involved in you know, political evaluations? Is it because you can't randomize laws and epidemiologists are somehow uncomfortable with something that you can't randomize? That seems to me like a big no, because we study things all the time that you can't randomize, like, you know, smoking. Yeah. So, you know, is it because we don't we don't have a good comparison groups and therefore we're just not willing to get in there? I, I don't know what it is. You know, I don't know why we don't do do more of it within epidemiology. But, you know, yeah. I think it's an open yeah. question. Yeah. Though so again, I would come back to, to my original statement, which is that I think that we do do a lot of, of research on the the on the impact of the policies that result from the laws. And I and I think you know I, I I've never read. That's not to say I actually have read or tried to read a, a law once. It was the <laughs> the the, the uh, FDA uh, the FDA Modernization Act when I was looking at at the, the clinicaltrials.gov reporting um, yeah. analysis I did a number of years ago. The actual statute just goes on and on. And on and on and on and on and on, and it covers so many different things. And so, you know, one of those things is is the requirement to post on clinicaltrials.gov. But if you were to sort of like, you know, say, here's a law. Let's see the impact of posting behaviors and trial compliance in clinicaltrials.gov because of the FADAMA Act. You know, it would be a very blurry way of looking at that specific policy amongst dozens and perhaps many dozens of policies that came through that act. It wasn't just that one thing. And I and I. I suspect that 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 may often be the case that laws are are sort of you know they include all sorts of different stuff not, rather than just being you know narrowed down to a, a particular uh, policy. Yep. Okay. Well, I think we we have come to an agreement on that one, and so why don't we move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And uh, Chris, I'm going to let you you go first. You got anything uh, watermelon related for us? Uh. Not watermelons. No watermelons. Bars. I wanted to talk about bars. 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 Uh, Bar none, like alcohol, alcohol, really, uh, but implicitly bars. Okay. So one of the, 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 the big consequences of covid has been that bars were closed as well as many restaurants but but bars in particular were considered to be you know like super high risk hot spots for covid transmission and i bet they were though i haven't actually seen any evidence proving that but but that i think that's probably because it's <laughs> it's rather hard to study but it seems like like how could it not be the case that you have all these people crammed into a small space you know for hours and hours and hours breathing on each other and and perhaps more and and that's got to be a great way of transmitting COVID-19. So this group actually sort of studied this general concept by looking at the effect of alcohol on how much space, physical space, people put between themselves in social situations. Mm-hmm. And and so this is sort of a, a clever little experiment. It's called Alcohol Narrows the Physical Distance Between Strangers with lead author Laura Gurrieri out of the Department of Psychology at uh, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And they used this very clever uh, experimental design where they enrolled, you know, about 240-ish individuals, but the individuals were enrolled in pairs. That is to say, you had the person who's being enrolled, and then they had to bring a friend. Mm-hmm. And both of the, the the enrolled person and the friend had to be social drinkers, meaning that they were willing to drink. And then they they randomly allocated them to pair up with either their friend the person that they knew or a random stranger. Mm-hmm. And then both of them, the, 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 both of these dyads were then randomized to receive a, 
either soda or hard liquor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hard liquor was was titrated to get them quite drunk to a blood alcohol level predicted of 0.08, which is the legal definition of intoxication where you can no longer drive a car. So they, they basically got these people drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they used these, these uh, computer vision monitors that, that, you know, like if you think about how Pixar does things when they're animating people, you know, dancing and stuff, they have actual people dancing and they wear these funny suits where the, 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 the camera kind of captures all the movements. And they, they used a similar apparatus to map the physical distance between these two people as they got drunk. Mm-hmm. And what they found is that when strangers drink together, that they get closer together. Oh, they lean in. They kind of like they bring their chairs closer. They become they, they their physical space narrows over time as they get more and more intoxicated. Whereas if they are if these are people who already know each other and are like friends and 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 don't have that initial I guess physical hesitancy because they they're already sort of intimate on the sense of having a good friendship that there's no effect right they they maintain their distance and with soda the same thing that they they don't narrow their distance but when you take two random strangers and you get them drunk they pull together like magnets and i was like wow that is cool <laughs> and it also kind of rings true that is fascinating so have you have you heard of the it just came out uh, june 1st this book called drunk how we sip danced and stumbled our way to civilization Oh, no, but I'm sure I'd love it. So I heard an interview. It's written by uh, Edward Slingerland, and he was featured on a, on a podcast that I, I listened to that is, you know, sort of more of an academic podcast. And it's it's all about the, you know, the, the pro-social benefits of alcohol and, and why we consume alcohol, fully acknowledging all the, the harms that alcohol causes, but but you know, arguing that that there are these evolutionary reasons why we have come to all, not all, but 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 that so many cultures have come to to consume alcohol, that it has these benefits that have been really helpful over time. I don't I haven't read it yet, so I can't comment. But, you know, this study does sound like it, uh, you know, it, it, it sort of speaks to that same idea. Kind of put some numbers on it. Yeah, I thought it was it was a cool design, cleverly executed, and totally made sense. I you know very believable. Totally. Of course, it was not blinded because the people who are who are involved definitely knew that they were drinking you know hard alcohol rather than the Pepsi. So there's that. But the the fact that they had that control of the friend friend versus the stranger stranger dyad made it more compelling in my view. Has anybody now has anybody done the study where you you randomly assign people to? either consume beer or non-alcoholic beer and you don't know which one it is and then see whether people's behavior <laughs> actually changes. That would be a, a big step up in the methodology. I love that idea. Because I, I, I suspect there's a lot of people who think they're, you know, their behavior changes just because they think they're drinking beer. Do, do you recall that episode of WKRP from yes. way, way, way back? I loved that show. Where, WKRP where, where, Johnny, in Cincinnati. where Johnny Fevers actually gets his reactions get get better the more <laughs> alcohol the he drinks. Yep, that's the one. Yep, he's totally incapable at the beginning. Like you know, he hits. They say hit the buzzer, and it takes him like three or four seconds to react. But after like ten shots of vodka, his re- reactions are like just light speed <laughs> okay so i think that is the the very first wkrp reference on this show and i am so glad that we finally got one in such a good show what you got matt mine is a a short one i always say it's a short one but this is probably even in shorter than usual but chris when you want to hire a a scientific colleague how do you typically try to go about you know assessing their their scientific abilities do you like is there any kind of you know, 
testing that you do to try and figure out if they're actually good? Well, I have tried that in the past and it has always failed abysmally. So I, I can't say that I, you know, I, I once sort of like quizzed a, a potential lab applicant by presenting her with some data from, from the previous lab team and asking her what she thought about it. And she didn't, she didn't spot the point that I was trying to make. And I felt very discouraged and was kind of down on her, but we hired her anyway and she turned out to be awesome. So mm. Yeah, so my so, end of one experiment was a total bust in this regards. Yeah, so I'm thinking. Uh, so in this case, I'm thinking of sort of hiring at a, at, a, at a bit of a higher level, someone sort of the doctoral, postdoctoral, or even even uh, a faculty level. And there, I think you know, we we what we typically do is we have people give a, a presentation and they they sort of talk about their their work, and then we try to assess whether or not we think it was good work, which I think is you know is a reasonable approach. But I don't know whether or not it's a, it's effective or not and i think we're all sort of looking for creative ways to 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 get around that i mean i i think that what i what i tend to do when i've seen other people doing is is this sort of dance where you know, you just start talking science mm -hmm. and, you mm -hmm. know, you just sort of bounce through all the different areas and the ideas and thoughts that, you know, and you sort of see what other people, what the other person thinks and, you know, yeah. whether they're reacting to you in an inquisitive way, in an intelligent way, or if they're just saying silly nonsense things or just like, yes, sirring you. And I, I find that, I think that is helpful. I yeah. don't have any proof that it's helpful, but it, it, it certainly gives me confidence that the person I'm talking to is speaking the same language as me and thinking about the same problems in a yeah. somewhat rigorous way. I think that's helpful. Me too. I, I, I find that the job talks I have been misled by, that I've mm -hmm. seen mm -hmm. candidates come through a department who gave great job talks and then didn't really turn out to be great researchers um, and vice versa. And vice versa, yeah. Yeah. Well, so here's here's a, a clever take on this particular problem. So this this is a tweet, but it's a tweet announcing a, a uh, postdoc Job posting. This was by Miguel Hernan, who is a colleague over at uh, over at Harvard in the in the causal lab. And here's what the the announcement says. So this was: We are hiring postdocs at the soon to be launched causal lab. Applicants are expected to critique our published work, mm. explain how we can improve, propose alternative interpretations or findings, or point out potential wow. errors. Be bold. And I wow. just thought this was fantastic. Wow. Like what it's a... testing so many behaviors at once. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I Scientific suppose... rigor and diplomacy. Exactly. I mean, I suppose you could argue that this does disadvantage some who you know, might not feel comfortable, uh, whether for cultural reasons or, or other reasons, you know, critiquing a, 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 colleague, a colleague who you're going to sort of report to's work in a sense. But I, I still, I just, I thought this was such a... A, a clever way to 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 test a number of of different things. It's not going to tell you everything, but boy, what a what a great way to go! Yeah, I agree. Good for them. That was clever. I liked it, and I uh, hope to see more of that in the future. Okay, well, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you got a study or a topic you want us to take on, you can tweet us at, at @pophealthyx. Or you can tweet me at, at @profmatfox or. Don at dthea1 or chris at id.giller. You can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and sussing out when somebody's cell phone is ringing. Thanks for joining That's us. Me. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you will download our next episode. <laughs> <laughs>